This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 123. Psalm 123. You, uh, you know I like the Psalms because I go to them so often. Uh, this is one we looked at maybe 10 years ago when we did a series on the Pilgrim Psalms. And I want to go back to it. I've commented that I like the Psalms because of their just blunt honesty. Uh, sometimes the psalmist is uh, lamenting or complaining or or just expressing the grief of human suffering in a way that resonates with us. He even asks questions like, how long, O Lord, will you wait to deal with these things? And they're emotions that all of us feel. This is one of those psalms that is a most definitely a psalm of lament, but it's not a psalm of complaint. And we're given no clue about the historical context of this, We don't know the author of it. We don't know the period of time when it was written. Some commentators have suggested it might pertain to the time of the exile during the Babylonian captivity. Others think that it belongs to maybe a later time, the era of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the Jews returned to their land and they found it inhabited by Samaritans and Edomites who were actually filled with contempt for the people of God. And this could express the feeling of the Jewish people at that time. Whatever the case is, this is a prayer for deliverance from a beleaguered soul who is emotionally spent because he has been the brunt of taunts and insults and mockery from scoffers who hate God and hold believers in utter contempt. And so uh, let me just start by reading the text. It starts with that pilgrim song inscription, we, we've looked at, you know, there's a set of 15 psalms that all have the same inscription, a song of ascents. And we've talked about how that probably means that these were choruses sung on their way up, up the long winding road that leads to Jerusalem. As they were ascending that road, they sang these songs of ascents, and this is one of them. So the psalmist writes, uh, Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, the one enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a servant girl to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Yahweh. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly saturated with contempt Our soul is greatly saturated with the mockery of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. And then that's it, four verses. And those last two verses sum it up. Here's how the ESV translates it. If you're looking at the ESV, this is what you read. We have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough scorn. Now, uh, that describes a feeling that I know very well, and I suppose you probably do as well. We live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to any expression of faith. You've got, you know, dozens of scoffers on television every day, comedians and talk show hosts and news commentators who hate and deride biblical truth at every opportunity. Atheists are these days militantly outspoken and aggressive in their contempt for anyone who has faith. As John MacArthur said recently, it's amazing that anyone would devote so much airtime and so much emotional energy 
to something that they don't believe in. But you see it in the media and on the internet every day. People who claim they don't believe in God are obsessed with him. And on the other hand, if you stand up for God's word in any kind of public forum today, you're going to be shouted down and mocked and treated with the utmost contempt. The world will respond with hostility and hatred and anger and jeering ridicule and condescending scorn And even worse, in some parts of the world, they'll kill you. And the pressure from an increasingly arrogant, unbelieving world is proved to be relentless. Many Christians in our culture have been bullied or intimidated into silence or compromise, even when the issues are clear and important, like the question of whether homosexuality is a sin or not. These days, it's hard to find... Christian leaders who will speak clearly on that question because of the scorn it gets you if you simply state biblical truth. Now, all you have to do in order to be assaulted with acrimony and contempt nowadays is just say, you believe God created the universe. Suggest that this universe did not evolve by chance out of sheer nothing. Uh, I recently read a a news item in a secular source that mentioned our pastor, John MacArthur. And it was clear they wanted to portray him in a negative light. And so they described him as John MacArthur, a young earth creationist. And it was clear that the writer of that article thinks that our belief in the biblical account of creation is sufficient reason to simply dismiss us all as complete idiots or or just, you know, totally revolting freaks. That is how the world is beginning to see Christianity. And if you want an even more hostile response from today's cultural mainstream, just say that homosexuality is a sinful perversion and it's a shame to those who practice it, which is frankly a truth that no one in our grandparents' generation would have even thought to dispute. But say that today and you will be attacked as an unenlightened bigot and a moral troglodyte. I likewise try to suggest that killing an infant in its mother's womb is an act of murder against a helpless human being. Again, another simple fact of science. If you say that, you will incur the collective wrath of the political and academic and secular media brain trust. You can't hold biblical opinions today and say so out loud and not suffer some kind of scorn, mockery, or attack. And all of that is because Christianity has been portrayed as a foolish and outmoded worldview by a a, a deliberate, aggressive public relations campaign. And the irony is that the world's hostility has only intensified in recent decades as the church has desperately tried to win the world's admiration and approval, you know, with compromise and pragmatism and all of those things. But the prevailing view in our culture today is, nevertheless, if you believe the, world, the, the Bible is the Word of God, then you are simply worthy of the utmost scorn. The church will never win the approval of the world, nor should it try. Every other belief and every other kind of sexual perversion is greeted with tolerance and welcomed with open arms, and it's come to the point where the Christian faith is fast becoming 
the only worldview that, the politi- that political correctness deems intolerable. Everything else is tolerable. Biblical Christianity is intolerable. And if you've never felt the contempt of that kind of worldly scorn, it's probably because you haven't been clear enough in your own testimony. Because at the moment, the world is angry and disrespectful and full of raw hatred for Christ. And so much more than it's ever been, at least in my lifetime. And that is precisely the way Jesus himself said it would be, Matthew 10, 22. You'll be hated by all because of my holy name. John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And so, 1 John 3, verse 13, do not marvel, brothers, if the world hates you. It shouldn't surprise us. But keep Luke, Luke 6, verses 22 and 23 in mind, where Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, Jesus said, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for their fathers were doing the same things to the prophets." And the prophets and saints and psalmists of the Old Testament did indeed suffer that kind of scorn. They regularly had to endure persecution. They often suffered in far more direct and inconvenient ways than you and I do today. The sort of persecution we complain about is really mild by comparison. But we do understand and we identify with the spirit of this psalm And I think most of us will find it easy to empathize with what the psalmist was feeling when he wrote this psalm. This is a psalm for our times. Just four verses long. It's a compact expression of trust in the Lord. It's it's fairly typical in size and form for the psalms of ascent, these 15 psalms that are all labeled that way. Remember, these, again, are praise choruses, for pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And what sets these psalms apart from most of the praise choruses that we sing today is how these psalms run the gamut of human emotion. Not all of them are cheerful, hand-clapping, if-you're-happy-and-you-know-it style ditties, you know? We tend to think of praise choruses as sunny and upbeat. You know, I'm in right, out right, upright, downright, happy all the time. Did you all ever sing that one? I once ministered in India, and uh, uh, and I was there uh, the first day of this conference, dead tired from jet lag, and the guy who was leading it asked for suggestions on songs that they wanted to sing. And two or three guys raised their hand, and all of them wanted to sing a song called, Every Single Cell in My Body is Happy. Uh, That happened. I can't explain it, but... It's, it is how we tend to think. You know, it's, everything's all happy. and uh, Hebrew praise was not like that. It was brutally honest, which is why we have so many psalms of complaint, psalms of lament, psalms that give voice to the psalmist's despair and discouragement. And there are even some psalms that express frustration when the Lord delays to intervene on behalf of his people. And Hebrew music, you know, accordingly, is often in a minor minor key. And this psalm would sound just right in a minor key. 
It's a, it's a song of sorrowful praise. And it even ends with a note of lament about the contempt of the proud. But notice, sorrow is not the theme of this psalm. Read it carefully. You'll find the theme of this psalm is not sorrow, it's humble faith. And the true theme is sounded in the opening words, which is an expression of trust and reliance addressed to the one enthroned in the heavens. And in our translation, I'm reading from the LSB, the the exclamation mark that they put there is appropriate. It's a strong note of confidence that sets the context for the rest of this psalm. It's a song about the scorn and contempt of arrogant unbelievers, but with the sovereignty of God in view. It's a Calvinist psalm. It's not a hopeless complaint. It's an expression of the psalmist's conviction that God is sovereign even when it seems like the scoffers have the upper hand. It's a song about faith that defies even relentless persecution. And and I don't want you to miss the significance of this. Despite everything this psalm says about the relentless contempt of the proud, there's no sense of despair or futility in this psalm. In fact, if you pay attention carefully, grasp what the psalmist is saying, it should inspire courage and perseverance. What he's saying is when you're fed up, look up. In short, this is a psalm about looking up when circumstances tempt us to be downcast. And with that in mind, here's a few features of this psalm that I want you to notice. First, notice the word eyes appears four times in the first two verses. And the stress is on looking up toward the heavens where the Lord is enthroned with hopeful and expectant eyes. To you I lift up my eyes. Our eyes look to Yahweh our God. Look up, especially when your spirit is downcast. And then second, and and you wouldn't get this from any English translation, but I want to tell you that this is an unusual case where you actually have rhyming sounds in the Hebrew original. Several of the words throughout this psalm end with the same sound. Three expressions in verse 2 sound alike in the Hebrew, our eyes, our God, and the expression mercy upon us, verse 3, repeats the expression have mercy upon us twice, and then you have a single Hebrew word translated we have had more than enough, and that Hebrew word rhymes with all the other words. So in verse 4, the word translated soul ends with that same sound as all those others, So in all, you have about seven words in three succeeding verses that rhyme. If you could hear this in the original tongue, you would notice that repeated sound. Now, normally, of course, Hebrew poetry doesn't rely on rhyming. It uses parallel thoughts rather than rhyming words. And in this case, there is some rhyming of the word sounds along with the parallelisms of thought. And so that's the second thing I want you to know about this psalm. Third... And this one is significant. Notice that although the the psalmist is troubled, he doesn't actually mention what his trouble is until the very end. Again, this is a psalm about his trust in God. It's not about the troubles per se. The troubles are there, and he talks about them. 
But he saves that to the end. He starts with his, an expression of his confidence in God, his faith. Now, fourth, these are all preliminary things. I love the contrast between this psalm and the one that precedes it by two psalms, Psalm 121, which years ago when we studied this whole series, we studied them all. Psalm 121 is the one that opens with that famous line, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help. That's the King James Version. And when we studied that psalm, I stress the point that he's not saying that the hills are the source of his help. That's where the threat was. He was pondering the question of where his help would come from. And so he's looking beyond the hills into heaven, and he says that here, where God is on his throne, unthreatened by the rage of the heathen against him, unchallenged by the rebellion of people who hate him. God is seemingly unperturbed by the relentless scorn of so much worldly contempt. And, and the idea the psalmist is expressing here is reminiscent of Psalm 2, that famous psalm, Psalm 2, verse 4, the nations rage, but he who sits in the heavens laughs at the opposition of this world's rulers. The Lord mocks them, Scripture says. He holds them in derision. Because in the words of Psalm 11, verses 4 and 5, Yahweh is in his holy temple, Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, in other words, he sees everything, and the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Do you know that's in Scripture? The wicked and the one who loves violence, God hates. And Psalm, 11, Psalm, Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. All of those ideas are, are built in by implication into the address in verse 1 of our psalm. The God in whom we trust is enthroned in the heavens. He's high and lifted up. He is sovereign over all. He is so far above all his adversaries that they pose no threat whatsoever to him. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. Again, the psalms are pretty Calvinistic. Now, looking at God through the lens of human scorn is like looking through the wrong end of binoculars. We tend to do this, sadly. All of us, I think, have a tendency to do this. But we look at God and, and, and see him through the lens of people who hate him, the scornful things atheists say about him. That distorts God. It makes him look small. Instead, we ought to view the enemies of God from his perspective, and then we can see how insignificant they really are. It's like David and Goliath. Remember, everybody looked at Goliath and thought how, how large he is, how imposing and undefeatable this giant is. And David looked at him and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He saw Goliath as small because he was seeing him from God's perspective. That's how we ought to do it. We view the enemies of God from his perspective. We see how insignificant they are. In the words of Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6, who is like Yahweh our God, the one who sits on high? He is the one who must bring himself low to see the things in heaven and on the earth. And the psalmist understood that. And, and so even in the midst of what he's suffering here, a relentless assault of mockery and, 
and hatred, feeling as if he's drowning in the contempt of the wicked, he, he begins this psalm with a note of high praise. Looks to the Lord in worship, verse 1. He looks to the Lord in obedience, verse 2. He looks to the Lord for mercy, verses 2 and 3. And he looks to the Lord for relief, verses 3 and 4. And so there's a thread that runs all the way through this psalm that teaches us God's people should look to God in times of trouble with the knowledge that he is sovereign, that his purpose cannot be derailed, that he will, in his perfect timing, he will come to our aid, even if it seems for the moment that he's delaying or withholding his help. He's not. He'll get here on time. And here's just one more preliminary observation before we go through this text verse by verse. One other thing I want you to see, it's significant, I think, that this psalm, despite its emotional intensity, is so compact, just four verses. It's not the shortest of the 15 pilgrim psalms. Psalms 131 and 133 and 134 are each only three verses long. This one is four verses long. It's the fourth shortest of these 15 psalms, but the shortness of it is stunning when you consider the subject matter. This is the kind of circumstance where most of us would be tempted to pray a protracted prayer for relief, you know? In a situation like this, you want to make a really long prayer, a really long and passionate prayer. That's the temptation. It's not what the psalmist does here. In fact, listen to what Luther Martin Luther said about this psalm, he wrote, This psalm, as you see, is but short, and therefore it's a very fit example to show the force of prayer, that it doesn't consist in many words, but in fervency of spirit. For great and weighty matters may be comprised in a few words if they proceed from the spirit and the unspeakable groanings of the heart, and especially when our necessity is such as will not permit any long prayer." Every prayer is long enough to, if it's fervent and if it proceeds from a heart that understands the necessity of the saints. Now, I've lost track of how many times I've made that point from this pulpit over, those year, over the years, but when you're praying, don't use meaning, meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words, Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. That's what Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, and that was just before he taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer. And in fact, the version of the Lord's Prayer that's recorded in Luke 11 is less than three verses long. Long prayers are not somehow sanctified by their windy eloquence. And it is true that Jesus sometimes prayed all night, and he spent long sessions alone in prayer. There are times when that's appropriate. But I want you to notice that Jesus' public prayers were almost all short and pointed. You have in John 17 one record of a long prayer that Jesus prayed. But ordinarily, his prayers consisted of just a few words and some very focused passions. And in those public contexts, especially, when he knew that people were hearing his his verbal prayer aloud, he made his prayers teaching opportunities for the people who overheard. 
Uh, for that very reason, I love the prayer he prays in John chapter 11, just before he raises Lazarus from the dead. It's not a request for God to work a miracle or, or uh, you know, show himself great or any of that. It's a simple expression of thanks to God, mainly for the benefit of the mourners who were standing around waiting to see what Jesus was going to do. In fact, I'll read it to you. Here's the entire prayer, John 11, verses 41 and 42. Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing around, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. And then when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So he prayed that prayer aloud for the benefit of the people who were listening. And in the very same way, our psalm, or this praise chorus, serves a didactic purpose like that. This is a true expression of praise and prayer to to God, but it is also for the benefit of the human auditors to teach us and encourage us. And I think you'll see evidence of that as we delve into the individual verses. Now, this psalm presents the psalmist to us in a complex series of roles. After the opening expression of confidence in the sovereignty of God, notice he portrays himself as a slave in verse 2. Then he takes the role of a supplicant in verse 3. And finally, in verse 4, he speaks of the abuse he has sustained as a sufferer when he's an object of scorn and contempt, who who desperately longs for relief. And in fact, in each of those roles, the slave, the supplicant, and the sufferer, he exemplifies the kind of godly submission that God summons us all to. Listen to 1 Peter 2, verses 20 and 21. When you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this finds favor with God, for to this you have been called. So we've been called to this kind of suffering, and we're supposed to endure it with patience and faith and know that it finds favor with God when we do that. So this is a psalm for all of us. So let's, let's look at it with those three roles in mind and in that order, the slave, the supplicant, and the sufferer, and we'll let that sort of simple outline guide us through this psalm. First, consider the slave. The opening verse of the psalm with this bold declaration of God's sovereignty sets the tone for the whole thing, declaring God is sovereign. He is enthroned in the heavens, which puts all the rest of us, righteous people and scoffers alike, all of us, are put in proper perspective by that. Because what it means is, if God is sovereign, we're not. And so when the psalmist says in verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, the one enthroned in the heavens, he's speaking as a subject to the supreme ruler, or better yet, as a lowly slave to his exalted master. Yes, verse 1 is an expression of worship and trust and adoration and praise and all of that, but the bottom line is that because God is sovereign, because he's the absolute supreme ruler and Lord over everything he ever made, 
we owe him our absolute, unquestioning, unhesitating obedience and our service and our loyalty and our faith. And Psalm 100 makes that same point. Know that Yahweh, he is God. It's he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people. In short, he is our master and we are his slaves. God doesn't exist to serve us, but vice versa. And the psalmist expressly recognizes and affirms that truth. In fact, he says that's why he's lifted up his eyes, not, not merely in worship and adoration, but also in expectant willingness, kind of a humble eagerness to obey God. Verse 2, behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, or as the eyes of a servant girl to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God. He's expressing his willingness to obey whatever God's will is. You know, in ancient times, a, a slave would stand quietly and unobtrusively across the room, and he would keep a, a close eye on his master's hand. The master would direct his servant with subtle gestures, little hand movements, and at the slightest sign from him, they would do his bidding. And the psalmist is saying he's looking to heaven in that same fashion. It's, it's an imagery that is rich with meaning. It speaks of patience. The servant waits patiently for his master's direction. He knows that it is not his role to tell the master what needs to be done, but again, vice versa. It also speaks of implicit trust. When the master is dealing with his adversaries, the slave doesn't need to understand or concur with the master's strategy. It would be inappropriate for him to interfere or intervene in any way, even if he, the slave, becomes the brunt of the enemy's insults or abuse. His only job as a servant to his master is to wait on the master, and that is what the psalmist recognizes in verse 2. You know, indignity and humiliation would be an expected part of the typical slave's daily experience, just part of being a slave. Indignity, humiliation, abuse. Servants in ancient Middle Eastern cultures were often shamefully abused, not necessarily by their own masters, for example, if someone out in the world secretly held the master in contempt, a domestic servant who might be sent on a simple errand could end up receiving the, on the receiving end of that person's hatred. An enemy who is too cowardly to oppose the master to his face might take it out on the slave with insults and ridicule or even physical abuse, and the slave had no means of repelling whatever mistreatment he might suffer. The only recourse was whatever protection the master might give them, and that is exactly what the psalmist is referring to at the end of verse 2. Our eyes look to Yahweh our God until he is gracious to us. And the language used there is significant and touching. This is not an imprecatory prayer. It's a plea for mercy. In other words, he's not praying, and this is remarkable, isn't it? He's not praying for justice against his enemies. He's praying for mercy for himself. He doesn't ask God to destroy the enemy. And there are some imprecatory psalms, you know, where the psalmist begs God to defeat the enemy for his own name's sake. And that's appropriate at times. But here, 
The psalmist is seeking relief for himself, and he cannot make an imprecatory request for his own sake. He, he's, he can't say, Lord, destroy this guy because he's insulting me. When he prays an imprecatory prayer, it is for God's sake. When he prays for his own sake, he recognizes that what he needs for his own sake is mercy. And he recognizes that. He doesn't suggest that he deserves deliverance. Just the opposite. He's begging for mercy. And implicit in this request, Lord, be gracious to me, implicit in that is a confession of his own sinfulness. He knows he's an unworthy, unprofitable servant, uh, and by requesting mercy, he is confessing that he is sinful. He doesn't deserve mercy. He doesn't deserve deliverance, but he wants God's mercy. And so this whole prayer is seething with humility, and it's extraordinary humility. Let's be honest. This is not how most of us are inclined naturally to pray. This is the antithesis of that sort of selfish, self-centered praying that we tend to fall into. Even though he is the one suffering wrongfully and he's desperate for relief, he never protests that this is unjust against him or he doesn't deserve it or any of that. This is a great example of how to pray for ourselves without praying selfishly. And it has all of those characteristics for one reason. It's because the psalmist understands that God is sovereign and he knows that he himself is subject to the majesty and authority of his master. He's merely a slave with his eyes fixed firmly on the master, and that's the key to his humility. It's not a, a cowering, abject humiliation with his eyes, you know, staring at the floor. This is the dignified humility of a servant in the palace of the highest king. The slave's eyes are heavenward, and the majesty and grandeur of God are what fills his vision. And I'll tell you, a clear view of God will humble anyone. Furthermore, faith is the inevitable fruit of that perspective. Faith, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith sees through the trials of this life and the persecution of this world and, and sees God high and lifted up. Like Moses, we endure as seeing him who is unseen. That's Hebrews 11.27. And the immediately preceding verse, Hebrews 11.26, says this about Moses. He regarded the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward and that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's looking beyond the reproach of these scoffers and anticipating the reward that will be his. He understands that God is sovereign, and these sneering adversaries of all that is holy really are nothing before the sovereign Lord of all the universe, and that knowledge enables him to put himself and his adversaries and his own suffering in proper perspective. And so his prayer is a modest prayer for mercy for himself. It's not an angry demand for vengeance against his persecutors. By the way, God will avenge his people, and the psalmist understands that. Deuteronomy 32, 35, Romans 12, verse 19, and Hebrews 10, 30, all of those verses say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that, that is usually, you know, quoted that verse, that statement, quoted as an admonition 
for us not to be vindictive. Vengeance is mine, Lord, I'll repay. And that is part of the lesson. In the words of Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, brothers. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. But then, that's where the apostle then cites Deuteronomy 32, 35, where God says, vengeance is mine and retribution. And so the key point, both in Deuteronomy 32 and in the New Testament references where that statement is quoted, the centerpiece, the whole heart of the matter, is an ironclad promise that God himself will punish evildoers and avenge his people. He will do it. Just be patient. And the psalmist gets that, and he also understands that he still is first and foremost God's slave. Implicit in that understanding is a willingness to leave all vengeance, even the timing and the means of vengeance, leave it all in the hands of Yahweh. And so the psalmist writes here from the perspective of that kind of slave. The plea for mercy suggests that he stands in another role, too. He comes not only as a servant, but also in a kind of priestly role as a supplicant on behalf of God's people. And so that's a second perspective I want you to see. First the slave, now the supplicant. And notice, this whole psalm is a prayer addressed to God. And what's remarkable here is this is the fourth psalm of ascent in this series of 20 psalms, and yet this is the first one of those 15 psalms. Did I say 20? There's 15 of them. They start in Psalm 120, and then this is the first of those in order that is addressed directly to God in prayer. All the preceding psalms in this series are songs about God. They sing about his faithfulness and his goodness and his mercy towards his people, but all of them are addressed to the people, someone besides God. This is a series of 15 psalms, as I said, starting with Psalm 120, a song celebrating God's faithfulness is where it starts, except for a single verse. Psalm 120 is a rehearsal of human experience, and it's, it's addressed to no one in particular. It's just a song about God's faithfulness. Then Psalm 121, the next one, is a song of praise about God, dress, addressed to his people. Psalm 122, the one that just precedes ours, is a song about Jerusalem, and it ends with a chorus of joy that is addressed to the people of the city. There's only one line in those first three pilgrim psalms that is a petition addressed to God himself, and that's verse 2 of Psalm 120. Like Psalm one, like all of Psalm 123, that verse, second verse in Psalm 120 is a plea for deliverance and persecution. Oh, Yahweh, deliver my soul from a lying lip and from a deceitful tongue. But this psalm kind of turns a corner, and the entire body of Psalm 123 is an extended prayer in that same vein, a prayer for deliverance. The psalmist is the supplicant, and from the opening words to the final verse, this whole song is a prayer addressed to God. Look again at verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, the one enthroned in the heavens. So he addresses God in the very first words. And then notice, the voice shifts from first person singular in verse 1. I lift up my eyes. He changes to plural, first person, in verse 2. 
our eyes look to Yahweh, our, our God, until he is gracious to us. And he keeps using these first-person plural pronouns. So he's praying not only on his own behalf, but he is acting here as an intercessor for all the people of God. And again, there's nothing selfish about this prayer, even though it comes from circumstances that I would tempt any of us to pray selfishly. But the psalmist resists that temptation by assuming the role of an intercessor on behalf of the people of God collectively. He doesn't stoke feelings of self-pity or his own you know, personal sense of need and comfort. He's definitely not a 21st century character who wants, who wants to play up his own victimhood. But instead, he takes a priestly stance and approaches God as a spokesman for the people. And that's why this is a prayer for mercy rather than a demand for reprisals against a relentless enemy. He's praying for people who he knows, he's one of them himself, we need redemption. We need redemption more than we need deliverance from our hostile enemies. We need redemption from our sin and the relief from our own guilt. And so the psalmist never protests in this entire psalm that the treatment of God's people is unfair because he knows that as sinners before God, what what they actually deserve, what all of us actually deserve, is far worse than any mere persecution where, where men, you know, men, human men might bring against us. In fact, understand this. We talk about justice and what's fair. None of us really wants or needs what's fair. What our hearts really crave and what we need most is mercy. And so that's what he prays for. Verses 2 and 3, this threefold entreaty for God to be gracious. It's a prayer for mercy. The Hebrew expression there speaks of bending or stooping low in a show of pity. They're asking God to bend low, to stoop low, and show them mercy. That's the grace they're praying for. And so what you have here is a passionate plea for mercy, and the psalmist repeats the plea three times in quick succession. Starting at the end of verse 2, our eyes look to Yahweh our God until he is gracious to us, till he shows us mercy. Be gracious to us, O Yahweh. Be gracious to us. And again, if you're reading the ESV, it's translated, give us mercy, give us mercy. These are not vain repetitions. You know, in Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus said, at all times we ought to pray and not lose heart. And then he goes on to tell a parable about a widow who was relentless in her quest for justice, repeating her demand until her request was answered. And Jesus says, we should pray like that, you know, persistently, uh, uh, without fail. Not vain repetition, but repetition is often necessary. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's praying with persistence so that he won't lose heart in these trying times. And it's noteworthy that this threefold request for mercy is addressed to the Lord. Think with me for a moment about this. Why would he beseech the Lord for mercy? Because God is not the one who is mercilessly pouring contempt and persecution on the heads of his people. It's the scoffers who are doing that. And yet, there's no threat against them in, in his request. He makes even no verbal retaliation, 
and even the plea for mercy utterly ignores them and looks to God instead. And I think that's remarkable because, again, that is totally contrary to any human instinct. We pray against the people who are persecuting us and blame them and ask God for retribution, but what we really need is mercy from the Lord himself. Again, this is an implicit recognition of God's absolute sovereignty. God is not the author of persecution. He doesn't approve of it or endorse it or condone it in any way. And yet, because we know that he does whatever he pleases and nothing is beyond his control, we know that when bad things happen, God has sovereignly permitted it. He's allowed it. He could have stopped it. And we know also that he is good, and therefore he has good reasons for whatever he does. Always good, never evil. God is not the author of evil. So we know that he'll permit evildoers to act and permit the righteous to suffer, but he has good reasons for it. We don't fully understand those reasons every time, but now and then we get a glimpse of the wisdom of divine providence, and we get to see how God can use even some grotesque evil to accomplish a work of infinite goodness, which is precisely what he did on the cross, where God's own son, the only truly innocent human who ever lived, was made to suffer and die at the hands of evil men in what was one of the most, pro- it was the most profoundly wicked act this world has ever witnessed to put to death the holy Son of God, and yet out of that act came salvation for multitudes who trust Christ because Jesus' death on the cross was accepted by God as an atonement that is sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world. And so we clearly see that God can bring infinite good out of even the grossest evil. And if you don't believe God is truly sovereign, how could you ever trust him in times of adversity anyway? These truths are taught on every page of the Bible. God is sovereign, and he will make all things work together for good for those who are called to according to his purpose. That, in fact, is one of the most precious promises in Scripture. The wisdom of divine providence is one of the most amazing things we learn about God in Scripture. He will glorify himself in the outworking of all history, including those parts of history where it seems evil men have the upper hand. God is still sovereign. And the psalmist recognizes that. So while this is a persistent and tenacious and threefold plea for God to be gracious, it's a prayer of faith. He's not panicked. This is not a a disconsolate caterwaul. It's a prayer of faith. And still, The need is urgent and immediate, and as an intercessor on behalf of God's people, his passion comes through through this threefold repetition. Spurgeon preached on this text. He was preaching from the King James Version, which says, Our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. And Spurgeon says, He hangs on the word mercy and embodies it in a vehement prayer The very word seems to hold him, and he harps on it. I like that. He's harping on it. Now, let me come back to the point that this prayer is a prayer for mercy, not vindication. There's not a hint of self-justification here. 
It's precisely the kind of prayer Jesus commends in Luke 18. That's the parable, you know, of the publican and the Pharisee. Luke 18, verses 11 and 12 says, The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You listen to this guy, and he's eloquent. He sounds pious. He, he has a list of good works that he has done, and he recites them back to God. And he's not just making that up. This guy had lived his life as a righteous uh, uh, Pharisee. I mean, in, in the sense of the Pharisaical self-righteousness. He was rigorous with his obedience to the externals of the law. He was publicly respectable. He was fastidious, holy, constantly attentive to all kinds of religious minutiae. But his heart was completely devoid of any of the humility that you see in Psalm 123. And so even though that Pharisee starts his prayer by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, and thereby he seems to at least tacitly credit God for the grace that enables him to be holy, notice his prayer is still all about himself, his good works, his accomplishments, his utterly mistaken notion that he is not like other men. Yes, he is. And especially his belief that he was so much better than this publican. In reality, he was just a different variety of sinner, as much in need of God's mercy as anybody else, and true humility would have taught him that. But he was a proud and arrogant man. On the other hand, the publican, this tax collector, had nothing to pray for except mercy. Standing some distance away, Scripture says, he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And there may be even a kind of backhanded reference to Psalm 123 in that verse, or at least it reminds us that in Judaism, uplifted eyes are part of the posture for humble prayer. Looking up reflects the truth that God is seated on high, infinitely above humanity. And our psalm starts by that. Lord, I lift up my eyes to you. But this tax collector in Luke 18 was such a gross sinner, so ashamed of himself, that he could only look down at the floor. This is the humility of abject disgrace. And nevertheless, Jesus commends his prayer for mercy... And he condemns the rigorous man who so proudly rehearsed his own good religious works, which should give us a clue about the kind of prayer God hears. The psalmist, in our psalm, strikes all of the right notes. With total humility from start to finish, he prays as a servant with a quiet, obedient heart. He comes as a supplicant, making intercession for his people with a humble and chastened heart. But he also stands in a third role, one that he doesn't expressly mention until the very end of his prayer. So we've talked about how he approaches God as a slave and as a supplicant. Now he comes as a sufferer, desperately craving deliverance from the hand of the enemy. And so let's look at this third role, the sufferer. Notice, by the way, all three of those roles evoke humility. A slave is the humblest of occupations. A supplicant must humble himself in order to pray rightly, and suffering is a discipline whose main benefit is that it humbles us. 
And so the stress throughout this psalm is on humility. Sincere humility is exemplified in every verse of the psalm. And these last verses especially resonate with us because they express what most of us feel in, in secularized culture that is, that is increasingly hostile to biblical principles. This is how we feel. So look at the last phrase of verse 3. We are greatly saturated with contempt. Our soul is greatly saturated with the mockery of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Contempt. Uh, it refers to an attitude of hostile condescension. It, it, it might be silent disdain or covert opposition, or it might be open insults. Mockery, verse 4, is a particular kind of verbal abuse, scorn and derision expressed in verbal insults that are designed to cause public humiliation through sneering and taunts and hateful sarcasm and, and angry tweets or worse. And the psalmist and the people of God have had it up to here with their enemies' barbs and persecution. It has become more than they can bear. And so finally, here at the very end of the psalm, we learn now the nature of the trouble that has prompted this prayer for God's grace. Why is he praying for God's grace? Well, we've talked about it all along, but he doesn't mention it until the very end here. And then once he names the trouble, as soon as he mentions the mockery of those who are at ease and the contempt of the proud, he ends the psalm. It doesn't go on from there. Still, he doesn't pray for revenge or vindication. He lets his threefold prayer for mercy stand as the only petition in this whole prayer. Despite all his trouble, he has no other prayer requests. He just wants mercy. And it's remarkable that there's no sense of anything like impatience or resentment anywhere in this psalm. Even verse 4 is more of a sigh than a complaint. But it is clear, isn't it, that he's fed up, he's weary, he's worn out, and I think all of us can relate to that. This, by the way, is another echo from Psalm 120, the first of the pilgrim psalms. Verse 6 of Psalm 120 says, Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. It's the same sentiment here, only it's not that his adversaries hate peace, but rather that they seem too so, so much at ease. They're comfortable. The wicked have made themselves comfortable, and they actually seem more affluent and more serene than the faithful people of God who are besieged by this constant trouble. And I don't know about you, but I can certainly relate to what the psalmist is feeling here. He almost seems to be describing the state of our culture. Here's the thing. This fallen world is no good place to be at ease. And wherever you see people carelessly at ease, totally heedless of spiritual things, you, what you're seeing is the prelude to God's judgment. Keep that in mind as you contemplate the state of our culture today, and do not think that being at ease signifies that you're enjoying God's favor. To be perfectly honest, I, I think for the past generation or more, the people of God have been too much at ease, which is why the church has become so worldly and backslidden. There's every sign that we are about to see 
persecution of Christians intensify, and it, it, it could well become very soon impossible for genuine believers to be at ease in a culture like this. It's aggravating to be the targets of persecution, and relentless opposition is discouraging, but God knows what He's doing, and the less we feel at ease, frankly, the better the church is going to be spiritually. Those who feel at ease are the ones who ought to be the most troubled. The Old Testament is full of warnings and woe against those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure in their rebellion against the Lord. In Isaiah 32, verse 11, God, through the prophet, says this, "'Tremble, you who are at ease.'" The prosperity of wicked people is actually a prelude to their judgment, and we need to keep that in mind. But again, that isn't the central point of this psalm. This psalm is an expression of true godly humility, and it points us to the living model of true humility, Christ. Every virtue that is featured in this psalm was embodied and put on display to absolute perfection in the person of Christ, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Although he was entitled to all the full prerogatives of deity, he took on human flesh and did so not as the highest of earthly kings, but as the lowliest of servants. And then he further humbled himself by willingly giving himself to die in the place of sinners whom he came to redeem. He paid the price of their sin in full so that those who believe can enjoy the reward of his righteousness. That is the very essence of a servant's humility in the person of God's own eternal son. And if you grasp it, it's a mind-boggling thought. Christ also stands in the role of a supplicant and continues in that role even now. Hebrews 7.25, he lives to make intercession. According to Romans 8.34, at this very moment, he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. 1 John 2.1, he is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's Lord of all, and yet he prays continuously on our behalf. And of course, the incarnate Christ also took on the role of a sufferer, bearing an eternity of pain and abuse on behalf of his people. He suffered willingly in their place. He paid the price of their sin in full so that God can be merciful to sinners like you and me without compromising justice because the price of sin has been paid. And that's how, on the cross, Jesus reconciled justice and mercy, redeemed the faithful, and opened God's floodgates of mercy for those who trust him. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's Psalm 85, verse 10. And it's celebrating the triumph of salvation, which Christ graciously purchased for us by his willingness to become a slave to the will of God, a supplicant for the good of his people, and a sufferer for the sins of others. And if you're not a believer in Christ, you can be saved simply by trusting him. Titus 3, verse 5, 
He saves us not by works which we do in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Same thing the psalmist is praying for. And it's a mercy that goes exceedingly abundantly beyond anything the psalmist might have envisioned or prayed for. And believer, though he saves us by grace and not because of any merit that we bring to the table, he saves us for good works. He saves us unto good works. And his humble, praying, suffering servant's heart, that's what we are to emulate. If he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and if our goal is to be like him, then we need to learn to bear those same kinds of burdens with grace. And Scripture expressly says that in 1 Peter 2, 21-23. For to this you've been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who being reviled was not reviling in return. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that is precisely what our psalm is saying. It's a lesson we desperately need to heed, especially in spiritually precarious times such as the era in which we live. Our eyes look to the Lord our God. May he have mercy upon us. Let's pray. Father, you did graciously give your Son to redeem us from our sin and our guilt And the price of atonement included suffering beyond our comprehension. Our hearts desire to be like him, but we need your grace and mercy to see us through the suffering we must endure and to bear us safely to the eternal glory that you've graciously prepared for us. Give us the faith and patience of this psalm writer. Give us his firm conviction as well. And above all, confirm our hearts and desires to the humble obedience that we see modeled in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.